This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about epidemics, at least. I mean, today, <laughs> we were just talking about before the show, we were going to talk a little bit about um, what's going on in the wider world, just because it feels weird not to, and it does affect, it's affecting everything. So, of course, it, uh, publishing and reading is something, so it does affect mm-hmm. that. Um, but we won't spend the whole time on it, because I know it, it feels weird to talk about it, then it feels weird to spend the whole time doing it, but um, such as life. And, you know, we were just talking, too, yesterday and today, like, it's affecting our real lives. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Rebecca, you have someone in your house that works in the financial markets, which has been unsettled, I think, is, is one way of putting it. Um, you know, <laughs> that might be the understatement of the century. <laughs> my, my darling Michelle, you know, runs a, an architecture firm here in Portland, and they have employees that work in an office, and they're trying to figure out what to do. We have employees all over the country. Um, my brother works in the food distribution industry, and I was talking to him last night, and the orders for his company are down like 40%, like overnight went down 40%. Um, And I know it's affecting so many of you out there. Um, And take care of yourselves out there. And and I hate to do this too, and it just feels like one of those situations I have a horrible bias against what comes out of the White House, but the kinds of things that is being said there versus what needs to be said is, is so... So insufficient to just wash your hands, mm-hmm. stay home if you're not feeling well. Um, you know, listen to people um, uh, that are actually talking about science because there's actually a lot we can do together to make it not as bad as it can be. There's little we can do to stop it. I think if you think you're gonna, I think if you think you're gonna stop it and or it's not gonna affect your community, I think you're gonna wake up at one point and know and understand that to be wrong. I would love to be wrong. I'm afraid we will not be wrong um, about this. So. You know, listen to your local people and stay away from big things and learn what you can about how to be a part of not making it worse. Um, on that joyous note, uh, let's do a sponsor and kind of narrow down into something that's not quite so huge. Um, let, let's, I mean, words coming fast now from all corners of the world of books and reading about what's going on and how coronavirus and mitigation um, strategies are affecting you know, at this point, all co- corners, and I guess the f- the first thing that started to go, we saw, was authors starting to cancel tours and events. Was, it, was that kind of the mm-hmm. first wave, Rebecca, that you saw? Yeah, authors starting to cancel appearances at festivals and um, book tour events. And now this week, we've seen a handful of literary festivals right. be canceled and also industry conferences. Yeah, Uh the international ones, as we talked about before, are getting canceled. Now the American ones are going to start to get canceled. The next one coming up, there's PLA. Um, that's probably going to get canceled, which is in Texas. And then oh, the yeah. BEA event in June. Uh, I could give you very good odds, if you were a betting person, that that will not happen at this point. Um, hard to know how... That really shakes out in the industry, uh, how much it matters. I know for individual authors that have a book out that touring helps, assuming it helps, which is sometimes an open question. Um, that's definitely a change. And I think the people that are going to see it first in the publishing industry, unfortunately, are independent bookstores. 
Um, yeah. You I were just so saying too. that you were talking to someone who is in the independent bookstore game, and really yesterday was the first day they saw a drop off of foot traffic, and those individual bookstores, you know, as we've said before in the show in different contexts, really do very well. Or a big chunk of what lets them stay in business is having authors come to their store, getting people in the store, buying books around that title. And unfortunately, the responsible thing to do for the near term for many communities is going to be not to allow those things to happen um, or to not go to them or you know, some combination thereof. For their case and for all of our cases, I hope this thing doesn't last very long, but I think they're, they're most susceptible to this, right? Is anyone else more susceptible than the independent bookstore and what it's going to mean for people actually not getting in there? I don't think so. You know, in the industry writ large, like in publishing, the work of making books can largely be done from a computer mm-hmm. located anywhere, um, you know, short of the folks who are actually involved in the manufacturing process. Right. So we're and we're, we've heard today that a couple publishers are um, this is like indicative of how behind publishers can be in some ways a couple publishers are testing remote work for two or three days, and then are going to make a determination about whether it's possible. And I think first of all, like, it kind of doesn't yeah. matter if they think it's possible. We're coming to a place where like people are just going to have to stay mm-hmm. home. So you better figure it out. But also most of what happens in publishing gets done either on a computer, by email, or in a meeting that could be held, you know, on Zoom instead. And of certainly in the short room. term, you know, even if you're not yeah. going to do this forever, um, you can get by in a lot of different ways. We might be biased because this is how we work, um, but also we know what's possible. Um, and not in every industry is going to be the same, but, you know, the big publishers, which are based in New York City, which there's some cases there, but also New York has some structural things that make it more susceptible to an outbreak, just proximity, density, mm-hmm. and you know intermingling of people. Um, be very concerned there as well. Um, there's some sense too, you know, on the wider scale, we're seeing in the wider entertainment industry of which publishing is a part, you know, we're seeing giant, I mean, F9 is being postponed a year. Did you see that today? It's not going to come out until April no. of next year. Um, this was to come out in a couple of weeks. Jen will be very sad, though. Probably mm-hmm. she's not ex- excited to go to a movie theater and seeing it anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> um, those kinds of like uh, you know, uh, No Time to Die got moved. Mm-hmm. Um, Quiet Place Two and got moved. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of talk about also like concerts and yes. performing arts. Books are different, of yeah. course, because you don't have to go into public to buy them. I mean, if the stats we hear floated around are true, that sixty percent of print book buying happens on Amazon a lot of that can still happen uh, in people's homes and get into that way. And that the other truth is that there aren't, there aren't big books like there are F9. So there's just not that many of them. And they can be, I don't think the opportunity cost of launching a book now is the same. The cost will be to move it versus moving F9 or Quiet Place 2. It's not, we're not talking millions of dollars of difference to move it um, six weeks. So... In that way, in some way, the publishing industry, because it is so mature and stable and there's so many units, for lack of a better term, there's so many books that any one getting moved around, I guess if there were, it's even hard to, outside of like a J.K. Rowling situation, like what book would actually get moved at this point? I can't think of anything big enough that they would they would move it to the fall. Um, at this yeah, point I can't think of, I can't think of anything that they would either and just the logistics around that would be even more complicated than usually delaying a book would be because of everybody you know mostly not working when and where they're supposed to be working i do think you're right that no one is more 
um, at risk of like really having business harmed in a long term fashion by this than independent booksellers. And one of the things that I've seen folks who are talking about like performing arts and concerts saying is like, if you have tickets to a function, Mm. and the function gets canceled, don't just take your refund for your ticket, see if you can donate it like to that performing arts organization. And certainly something that I've been thinking about is like, you know, if I'm going to be stuck in my house for two weeks, and I need books, I'm definitely going to be buying them from an independent bookstore that will mail them to me, um, rather than go in the Amazon route because mm. Amazon's going to be fine. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, that's a thing. Don't forget about it, that many of your independent bookstores have their own e-commerce solution. And if they don't, you might consider bookshop.org if you want. Um, though I will say, uh, I pre-ordered my hard copy of new waves. So that would arrive on uh, release day yesterday and it didn't come from bookshop.org. So, I, you know, whatever. It's mm. unusual times. It's hard to say that this would be. Un- yeah. But still, that, as the uh, tracking of Jeff's one bookshop that we're purchase <laughs> comes to a close. A sample size of one is a great way to yeah, make all, all kinds, kinds of, of all kinds. That's, that's what uh, coronavirus has taught us, that one data point is enough and we kind of know what's going on. Um, the other thing I've seen talked about is just supply, sty- supply side stuff from paper from China and other things like that, which is a part of the publishing industry. It doesn't seem like that's a the tariff and trade um, dispute, war, whatever you want to call it, that happened earlier seemed like it was more of a problem, but it doesn't seem to be as much of a problem from a very structural, like, commodity point of view at this point, though that could change depending on how things go. Um, anything else that's relevant to sort of breaking news as, as it uh, affects our world, Rebecca? No, I don't think yeah. so. At least not today. By the time this show comes out, who knows? Yeah, I, I was talking to my brother this morning, and I did find myself thinking that, I don't know if this is sort of gallows humor or gallows reading, is like, whenever there's the big investigative book about this time, I will be fascinated to read the whole mm, the whole mm-hmm. thing. You know, I, I saw a story that a lot of people are going to rent um, Steven Soderbergh's 2011 movie Contagion, which is about a you know, pandemic outbreak, which at, at one point I sort of understand the desire, but would never do that myself. But my version of that was, <laughs> I wish there was a giant big book about maybe there's one about SARS or something where I could actually learn something because mm. I, I feel like I'm so at the I'm a prisoner of the moment of what the last news item I saw um, that some historical context might be interesting. So as is often the case in, in my situation, when I'm nervous about things, I want to go read a giant book about a nonfiction book about it. Uh, yeah, I'm doing I'm practicing the avoidance method yeah, right. <laughs> instead. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, avoidance method we're, is kind of where it should be writ large, I guess, you know. Yeah, we're eating a lot of cookies mm. in my house this week. I'm watching a lot of Netflix. I am almost finished with New Waves, and it's fantastic. And reading a book about like tech dystopia is mm. kind of a relief. <laughs> Digital horrible things that can happen to people is a relief after literal physical yeah, ones. Yeah, right. Um, um, I guess we recorded it yesterday, but it's still to come to be released into the feed that uh, – Rebecca and I recorded an episode yesterday about about um, the new novel Weather by Jenny Offal, which was voted upon by insiders as the next selection in our big books of 2020 discussion mini series ongoing um, format. Um, and that's going to be released in the middle of next week, probably the 17th, something like that. We had a really, I thought, really interesting discussion that I'm yeah, still thinking about in a fascinating mm-hmm. book. So, though I have to say that's not one that's going to make you feel better 
uh, about the world. But if you're the kind of person that might turn to contagion sort of to double down on feelings about <laughs> nervousness, Weather by Jenny Offal could serve a similar kind of... Um, yeah, you want to do some existential work while you're home for the next couple of weeks. Weather is a good way to yeah, do it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, all right, well, let's get into actual news news that's outside of the realm of, uh, uh, of current events uh, after this sponsor break. The, speaking of news that happened fast, uh, after we recorded, we had only talked about Ronan Farrow's basically conscious uncoupling from Hachette uh, in mm-hmm. the wake of um, the announcement that Hachette would be, or Grand Central, which is an imprint of Hachette, would be publishing Woody Allen's memoir, Apropos of Nothing, that was supposed to come out April 7th. That day, right? That afternoon? Yep. My it was time? like an hour later. Um, yeah. <laughs> Several dozen Hachette employees staged a walkout in protest of the decision to publish Woody Allen's memoir. And then I believe it was the next day or the day after that Hachette pulled the plug and they will no longer be publishing Apropos of Nothing by Woody Allen. I haven't seen a follow-up story about is is Ronan Farrow coming back to the fold? Has he said anything about Mm -hmm. it from there? It would be gracious basically beyond asking for him to say, thank you so much for doing this thing. I, you know, we can reconcile. If I were him, I would be like, yeah, my suitcase was packed and I was on the train. Uh, I'm not turning around here, but I haven't, have you seen any I have not seen anything further, which leads me to believe that the bridge is fully burned. Yeah, Um, yeah, I think that if he were like, thank you for this, now you have taken right action and I will return, we would be seeing that. But it's the... You know, if if I read his original statement correctly, it was the like the damage was done at the point that Hachette made this decision and then actively hid it from Pharaoh and a bunch of other employees, mm. um, most of their employees. In fact, uh, it seems that this was going on. And so removing the like pulling the book is the best solution, but it's a solution to a problem that shouldn't have occurred in the first place. Yeah, eventually Hachette <laughs> did the right thing. And as, I, as I've said before, it's never too late to do the right thing, though it's never too early right. either. I guess outside of this particular title, um, this is a new phenomenon in my understanding of employees making a move like this. Have, do you have yeah. any memory of this happening before? I don't. The last title that we saw like people in publishing be really upset about was when the Milo yeah. Yiannopoulos book was supposed to come out. And that was either before Me Too broke or so oh, early right. in Me Too. And it wasn't connected to no. Me Too. But I think I think the fact that people are walking out over something like this and that it's um, that the horrible things that the author is accused of doing are connected Mm -hmm. to sexual abuse and misconduct, like that people feel like they can walk out and they should walk out and it might have an impact um, is a product of what's been going on the last couple of years in the um, cultural conversations and the responses to Me Too and that there were, I'm sure, folks working for Simon & Schuster at the time that Milo got a book deal who were appalled that their publisher would do that, but I'm assuming did not feel that they had any recourse or that staging some kind of walkout would result in a response. Mm. Um, and it's interesting, I think, to see this on the heels of also of American Dirt and of a publisher being pushed yeah. to make a response um, about a decision that they made um, to publish something and people's reactions to that. And this, yeah, that felt pretty unprecedented to me to see this happen. And I wonder how much of it was the book itself, how much of it was that, Hachette had already published um, Ronan Farrow's book. Like, let's say 
Simon and Schuster had announced they were publishing Woody Allen's book, would this or or let's say a different imprint or let's say uh, yeah, Simon Schuster was publishing it. Would Hachette's employees have been mad about it existing at all, or is it this? How much of it is the kind of double dealing of you publish Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill, and you're going to do this? Like uh, as Doc Holly would say, as appears, my hypocrisy uh, knows no limits. Um, or or just in isolation, would Woody Allen's biography been enough to stage this kind of reaction? Mm. I find because I found my own reaction like I am very much not interested in a Woody Allen memoir, and I would be very glad to see no publisher pick it up. But there was some special sauce about the twist of the knife of Ronan Farrow's yeah. house also doing yeah. it, right? <laughs> right. I think that's a variable that like, we can't just know. can't know how it impacted it. But it's been interesting to think about, like, what if this had been a Harvey Weinstein memoir? Um, or That's not going to happen, well, Har- right? I mean, I just... It, at this point, I don't right. think so. Also, but like Woody Allen hasn't—they haven't been to court right. over. Like he hasn't been convicted mm. of a thing in the way that, or charged in the way that Weinstein was. Like, but to put it on, I think that there would be a reaction sure. to to publishing Woody Allen, presume who is presumably going to address these allegations against him in this memoir. Like, how could he not? Um, I imagine folks who work for for whoever was going to publish that would have a response Mm -hmm. to it. But the connection of it coming out of the same house that published Ronan Farrow and in publishing Ronan Farrow, they, you know, seem to imply like we stand behind this work and behind exposing Mm -hmm. um, the cover-ups and exposing the protection of people who have committed sexual assault and or are accused of committing sexual assault. And then to find out that at the same time they've been, keeping a secret that they were going to publish a book by the person who's accused of um, of assaulting Ronan Farrow's sister yeah, yeah. <laughs> and happens to be Ronan Farrow's father. Like there's just layers of what is it in um, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof oh, right, walks yeah. around muttering mendacity. mendacity. It's just like, <laughs> it just feels like that here. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's so hard to know because I think for this walkout to happen, they got sort of they got a certain amount of cover from Ronan Farrow speaking out. And then they have right. the employees had a wider cultural cover from Me Too writ large. Yes, um, yeah. So I think that really matters. And that's just and like different Farrow's, now. Farrow's editor was one of them that I saw. I know I saw in a Twitter well, we, Didn't we speculate someone, about that? We're like, wouldn't you be just on fire yeah, if did. you were Farrow's editor? And somebody from, I think, Publishers Weekly had tried to reach out yeah. to his editor during the walkout, and she had an out-of-office auto-reply that bounced back saying, um, like, I am out of office as Hachette employees have staged a walkout in protest of mm. the publication of Woody Allen's book. So that went out to whoever tried to reach her at that moment, which is also a huge statement. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm curious about whether he was under contract for anything else. Um and what that's looking like, but I would be really surprised to see Ronan Farrow go back to Hachette at this point. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine you like, would do that, and probably, probably send the wrong message too, right? I mean, well, and how do you, I just don't know how you could feel that they were acting in good faith and that, that you could trust anything at that point. Know, someone who acts morally with a gun to their head isn't really acting morally, right? right which right. kind of felt like this is what actually happened: is that mm-hmm. Hachette was going to have very real. Um, labor trouble. Um, if yeah, they continued and with it. and there's really still been no admission of 
harm done. Like they've acknowledged the, the statement from Hachette says, we take our relationships with authors very seriously and do not cancel books lightly. Um, but they also are committed to creating a stimulating, supportive and open work environment for all of our staff. And they couldn't ignore that how the staff were feeling about it. So good job, Hachette employees yes. like, doing this, but still Heroes no one has week. said. Heroes of the week. Right. Still no one has said from Hachette, like, you know what, maybe we are also morally implicated for paying a person who allegedly has done horrible things to tell their story. Right. And by platforming them. And the res- I think the response around the industry to this is maybe even more interesting than mm. the decision itself that like Pen America came out making a statement that, that functionally they think this is a, um, it's a slippery slope and that um, stories we should be able to tell all kinds of stories from all kinds of people who have done reprehensible things and like writers shouldn't be muzzled. And I just need to like, I guess, repeatedly say like Woody Allen has not been muzzled or silenced. Woody can release his ebook on right. whatever he wants. He has the money to access the best like publishing He can call him Kaepernick it. The, we just saw Colin yeah, Kaepernick the best, right. The best publicist, the best publicist that money can buy, he can write his book and get it out there, but he's not entitled to a platform from a major publisher. And for as long as publishers insist on hiding behind this thing of like, well, we think people are interested in this story, which is just code for we think we can make money selling this story. And that's enough justification to, uh, or that's enough, yeah, that that's enough justification to get away with or to make it okay, that they've paid a lot of money to someone who's going to then make money off of telling their side of a story of huge damage done. Like that just needs to stop. Publishers are responsible for who they choose to platform and the kind of ideas that they choose to disseminate. And this notion of like, we're just trying to share all the ideas with any people who might be interested in them is that's insufficient cover these days. Um, And clearly did not satisfy Hachette employees or they wouldn't have walked yeah, out. I mean, that, clearly like, your, I'm done your with company that is a different, your, <laughs> your rank and file employees, or it sounds like even more than rank and f- file employees to some yeah. degree feel like that they are, they've made a different deal with what they're doing. Right. And that's where you get into trouble is where the people who are making the things and running the company have a different understanding of the business they're in. Now, maybe it would be mm-hmm. different if there was a publishing company like, well, maybe it's like Regnery's, um, the Regnery imprint of Simon Schuster, which is right. right wing. And that's where the He Who Shall Not Be Named book was coming from. You know, that imprint has been around for a while. And I guess if you work at Simon & Schuster, you understand it exists and they do something apart and different and it's compartmentalized in a way. But in this particular, it sounds like the, um, the, the Vox Populi of the Hachette employees, like, actually, no, this is not the deal we're making, that we just publish whatever people are interested in, no matter what. Uh, we actually want to do something other than that. And maybe you could have a publishing house where your culture is, our mission is we're, sometimes we're going to grit our teeth and bear it. And if you don't like that, leave. You, but right. that's, not, that's not the agreement that seems to be tacitly made at, frankly, most traditional publishing yeah. houses, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Like I was in a meeting at a the Christian imprint of one of the big mm-hmm. publishing houses or one of the Christian imprints of one of the big houses recently. And I think they function by the same things. Like it's not my assumption that everybody in that meeting was a person who practices Christianity and is down with all of it, but they know they're going to work right. for a Christian imprint and they know the messaging behind those books and the kinds of like content that they're asked to generate to promote those titles and they like they know up front that's what they're getting into. Like can you or can you not be okay working 
working on these titles. You get to make your own decision. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that like the denial of agency that's probably part of this too is that like Hachette didn't inform most of their staff that this was happening it was dropped in by surprise I think only a few people were involved in the like the planning and the deal and the making of this book and so to find out like way after the fact oh we didn't even get a chance to express how we felt Mm -hmm. about this that the people at the top made a decision and they made it seemingly knowing that it would not be well received because they chose to keep it a secret. Like, if you don't have anything to hide, don't hide things. And they hit a lot. Yeah, so I think outside of the particular title, like I said, the this is a new era. It could signal a new era in how really the populace that goes into making books, the army of editors and designers and salespeople and PR people and admins and whatever that go into making what we understand as the publishing industry can have influence on mass directly in the form of direct action, really, mm-hmm. that we haven't seen before. We had seen largely be the province of sort of the Twitter, social media the culture at large um, yeah. have this sort of organize, organizing and um, like vociferousness. Sometimes it gets things changed, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but in this particular case, I, if I were a publisher uh, working at some other publisher, I would guess that I had noticed this. And this mm-hmm. is going to get filed in the back of my mind. Um, if some imprint decides that, you know, I bet people would buy a Harvey Weinstein memoir in five years or whatever, something like that would right. happen. Or unfortunately, there's too many examples to pick from um, of, of how this could go down. Fascinating um, to see that. Um, anything else on that one, Rebecca? No, I think that covers uh, You may it. have heard um, me t- talk to Guy Gonzalez recently. Uh, and I did, we didn't talk in detail about... Um, Macmillan's going back out and sort of workshopping its uh, library <laughs> lending policies. Uh, Guy um, alluded to a little bit and outlined it to some degree. You and I haven't talked about this move, Rebecca, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll throw it to you first. What do you make of this story? Um, it's a Publishers Weekly link. As always, links will be in the show notes, bookwrite.com slash listen. What is this, what's going on here? Do you have a sense of what kind of a foreshock this, this is? I mean, I think the headline on as I'm reading it is that what Macmillan thought they were going to achieve by putting this eight week embargo on new release ebooks to libraries, they have not seen those results occur. And now they're willing to question the assumptions that led them into that decision and revisit the conversation. And one of the ways that they are revisiting it is by um, creating some alternate proposals and getting librarians input on those proposals. And that notably, this eight-week embargo is absent from all three of those. Um, really interesting after the like deep doubling down that the Macmillan CEO did about this policy before it was launched in that memo that was incredibly tone deaf that we talked about. Right. Uh, and then in some uh, follow-up appearances that he had done at industry events as well. But I think that's the top note is it doesn't seem that this is doing what Macmillan thought it would do in terms of pre- protecting their bottom line. And so they're going back to the drawing board and whether be- whether they really want librarians input or he's seeking it um, because 
going forward without getting input is, you know, not a great look. Um, there, that's where they're going. So I would love to see the balance sheet. Yeah. <laughs> um, as Guy said, I thought this was a piece of the equation that you and I hadn't really brought to bear. He's like, the thing that librarians care about the most in general, not all, it's not a monolith, but in general, mm-hmm. librarians care about access and privacy, right? And the models that Macmillan are proposing is not to go back to the old model, but to charge a higher price in the first eight weeks with basically you can, and the library can buy as many copies as they want. And then it price comes down over time so that they're still capitalizing on the, you know, swell of interest around a book's release, but a library can make it as available as they want to use their budget to make it available, which as, as publisher weekly says, undeniably solves the access question. And in classic negotiation style, you figure out what your, um, co, you know, your, your co, your, uh, I don't know, mm-hmm. your, your adversary, your partner, whatever you want to think about this, you figure out what they care about and what you care about. And if you can optimize for getting more of what you care about by giving them more of what they care about that you may not care about, then you might be able to come to an agreement. So like Macmillan really cares more about revenue, right? That's ultimately, yeah. and librarians certainly sound like they're not happy to be paying more, um, on a per license basis, but it's at least not restricting access. So maybe it's better in that regard. Still, the language to me is so wild, like how this is a problem we all have and we need to find a solution for all of us. Just say, we're trying to figure out how to make more money and make this sustainable. The, the, yeah. you, you brought this problem up. Like, you can't say, right. you, can't say <laughs> you know, the table's broken after you just cut it in half with a chainsaw. <laughs> well, we've all got this broken table in front of us. We've got to figure out a way together to fix it. Like, you hacked the table to death. I... That's the part of me, and I, I guess it's just how people talk in public when they're not super comfortable being, they're worried about what being forthright would do, I guess, is the charitable way of putting it. Yeah, I think that that's a theme that connects this and the previous yeah. story, actually, is that people seem to be afraid of what just telling the truth would do and being forthright about the situation would do, and in attempting to go around that and do like, you know, jazz hands to create distractions Mm -hmm. (laughs) they create a whole bunch of other problems for themselves like if Hachette had said up front months ago or whenever the deal was done that they were or even before the deal was done that they were considering signing Woody Allen you know Ronan Farrow's editor could have said her piece other um, other staff could have said their piece Hachette could have made a decision based on having that uh, having that input and even if they made the same decision they would be they would have been making it where like folks had had a chance to have a voice. And at this point, it's just a really tough look for Macmillan. And I think it's going to continue to be a tough look that even if they've come all the way around to the place of we really do want to work with librarians, it's that's a hard sell. And it's a hard thing for librarians to believe that um, that their input is actually valued or that Macmillan is trying to do anything other than just protect Macmillan's bottom line, which there's I think there is a way to say that in a forthright mm. manner too. like, look, we have to protect our bottom line in order to continue making books. And if you value the kind of books that Macmillan makes, you will get on board at least with providing input and helping this effort. But it, I think it's too late for that yeah. conversation. A lot of a lot of damage has been done. And trust has been, I think the trust here has been eroded to a place that 
it might be better for Macmillan to just sort of like quietly recede mm. rather than continuing to try to engage librarians and convince them that now now Macmillan can be trusted. Yeah, and someone is quoted in this piece as saying, it's not that I don't trust Macmillan's executive, I don't trust this process, which I think is very interesting. Mm. Um, an interesting distinction to make uh, about the pieces yeah. of what's going on here. If I'm, again, librarians aren't bargaining collectively or anything like like that. But if I, w- if they were, say, say if, say if I were chief negotiator for the libraries at this point, I'd be like, that's not good enough. Clearly, Macmillan's in enough pain to come out and try to figure out something else, right? Like, how how much pain are they in? Um, as Gee sort of suggests, there's a lot of boycotting happening, and a lot of there's a lot of revenue that Macmillan isn't getting. And unless they, if they were really seeing the improvement they hope to see, they would not be out on this truth and reconciliation tour, right? I mean, am I am I reading the tea leaves um, wrong here? Um, no, I think that's so true. So if I'm a librarian, I'm like, you know what? Our embargo seems to be working. We'll accept the existing terms. Or if I'm Michael Corleone, right. I'd say, actually, I want better terms than we had before. Right. That's what Michelle would say. Michelle's going to be listening to this, and she'll nod along and say that's what she would be doing. It's like I 100% believe yeah. that. You go get it, so, Michelle. So, again, not to say it always works, but that's her move. It's like, oh, I see this is working. Let's do more of it. Um, mm-hmm. Which I don't think is an unreasonable thing to do here, because another librarian says, you know, she works for a, um, a consortium of libraries, and they've seen their costs of digital goods basically increase 14 to 20% year over year for the last few years now. Some of that is they're just getting more usage. So, of course, you'd see, you know, it makes sense that the cost would go up. But it does feel like we're still talking around the central problem of what kind of a model around digital lending makes sense. Is it the one we just have now? And if it's not that, what is it? And we're sort of being, writ large, we're reacting to a move Macmillan made, um, mm-hmm. which maybe can precipitate a, a fundamental re-understanding, kind of what the Panorama Project is trying to do writ large is say, what is going on here and helping publishers understand what they're getting from libraries in ways that aren't just the fees they're getting for someone to check out the Institute by Stephen King. Um, Is there a way that they can understand their relationship with libraries is not just a market. That's sort of a one-to-one dollar per dollar correlation. Yeah. It really feels to me like this is the biggest reminder that the way we do digital lending from and the relationship between publishers and libraries, I think just needs to be blown up and started over from scratch, where someone from the library side and somebody from the publishing side sits down and and they put on the table, these are all of the things that we can do. These are all of the needs we're trying to meet. You know, publishers have to make money. Libraries want to provide access. Here are all the tools that we have at our disposal on both sides to do those things. What do we make from scratch? Because I just don't think that the model that we have now, which is like a retrofitted version of the way that print book lending Mm -hmm. works, that we just like invented and tacked on when digital became a thing. I just don't think that that is what is the best um, or what we would have come up with if folks had started from a like from the place of zero and looking for a brand new solution rather than modifying an existing way of doing it. It really needs a close It does look. feel like if you started from scratch, knowing what we know now about digital, that some sort of metering situation makes the most sense. It just feels like it makes the most sense. Like per checkout yeah. price. Um, and I know that price would be a thing, but it feels like that makes more sense. Like, what is the deal Scribd gets? Uh, start there. That would be a good external principle, right? Yeah, um, I think so. Email us at bookwriterpodcast at Boston. No, that's none of that's right. Podcast at bookwriter.com. <laughs> if you know, if you have a sense of what, what would be the strengths and weakness of metering or 
again, I know librarians will have one position and publishers have other, but like if we were to create the world anew, Tabla Rasa, this sucker, show title, um, <laughs> you know, where would we start? Because it doesn't feel like this is it. It doesn't feel like this is it. It does feel like, for yeah. example, Spotify. It took us a long time to get there. But from a music right. streaming point of view, and I've, I've read a bunch of stories recently about how, you know, the publishing, uh, music publishing revenue has gone up because of Spotify and growing. But it took us Napster and iTunes per unit and DRM and all the way to get here. It does feel like there's maybe some uh, somewhere over the rainbow where something makes sense where publishers and authors get paid for the work that they make mm-hmm. by libraries, but also libraries can then fulfill in a way they feel good about their mission, which I think very few people that we care about listening to believe is valuable in a, in a real and, and um, significant way. It, it just feels like we started out in a weird place and it's hard to get to the right place from a weird place. Also a good show title. <laughs> the right place from a weird, from place. A weird place. That feels like life in <laughs> That's general right, right now. <laughs> uh, let's do one more sponsor. Yeah, I think so. And yeah. then um, we got one more story and we're done. Okay. You want to take this last one? Yeah, this is, is this heroes of the happy. week. Kind of not here. I think eh, borderline it's... good thing. Good thing. Yeah, this is a good yeah. thing, and it came out of a you know big agency. Um, the New York City Department of Education announced this week that it is releasing a new book list for students kindergarten all the way through twelfth grade that is more diverse and culturally responsive. Um, The titles were compiled based on recommendations from students, parents, educators, and community members. Um, It's part of NYC Reads 365, Mm. which is the Department of Education's citywide program that's aimed at encouraging students all the way from K through 12 to read for fun. Mm. Um, There's 254 books on the list. They include characters, authors, and topics that represent a diversity of gender, ethnicities, orientation, religion, socioeconomic status, abilities, and health. And that's in line with New York City's definition of culturally responsive, sustaining education, which is a cool thing that I didn't know New York City had like listed as a value explicitly for education. But that's awesome to hear as well. Um, And that this list is going into classrooms um, being used as like here are books you can go read for fun. Mm. Um, I have no idea how this correlates to like the titles that are required reading Mm. in classrooms or how diverse um, and culturally responsive those are but I'd, i would love to know i'm sure we have some new york city educators yeah. uh, listening here so let us know what you know but this was exciting to see especially after a, a recent like spate of stories earlier in the year about parents reacting negatively to similar lists that had similar kinds of uh, of diverse and inclusive titles on them so i think good job new york city yeah. department of education but also good job entire community around that that supports the creation of a list like this and then allows it to come out into the world and be used without without protest and with some celebration yeah um, some stats that I think we've talked about maybe in other contexts, but it's worth noting. Um, the report says that the percentage of children's books published by authors of color have grown from 7% in 2013 to 22% in 2018, triple in five years. Mm. And it, I think that reaffirms the mental model we have that the work being done by We Need Diverse Books and Other People has especially taken hold in children's yes. books. And yeah. I think that's worth noting to say it's tripled. That's since this that since book rights been a thing. Like we did we didn't start doing the mm-hmm. podcast in 2013, but 
2015-ish, in May of 2015. So we started doing this, and we started talking about this and listening to other people and reporting, you know, sort of talking about what the larger conversation going on. But in the span of that time, and that's just 2018, I think 18 months later or whatever it is, that number's probably even higher now. Yeah. Um, yeah so that's, that's something to celebrate. And, you know, one thing we've talked about over time is like, how do you know, is there a baseline that you're looking for? And one thing this report did is say, you know what? Um, 70% of the books were by authors of color, even though 17% of New York City public school children are white. So there's this very, there's this real gap between who's doing the reading and who's writing the books being read and trying to shrink Mm -hmm. that gap, I think is in the spirit of, of a kind of equity uh, of what people have been looking for over time. Um, A really interesting list, a really interesting process. They solicit information from the community. Um, yeah, which I think is a really good idea because New York City is one of the most diverse places on earth, and any individual any individual community of any reasonable size will not have the collective experience um, and knowledge about the kinds of stories that would be representative, more representative of what goes on in New York City uh, as as one of the you know it's not a melting pot's the wrong metaphor anymore, but one of the great at certain times, um, monuments to what diversity can look like uh, in a city. So I think it's really, really fascinating to see. Um, the chancellor has been clear that students need to see themselves reflected in the books that they read and the lessons they learn, and all future core, core curriculum will meet this standard. So it sounds like this is yes. the first step. And as things go in education, it's easier to do sort of an extracurricular thing, get that ball moving, and then mm-hmm. leverage that success into a structural change about what's actually happening in the classroom. So I think this is this is going to mean more changes um, down the road. Yeah, it's really awesome to see. Um, so anyway, link to that um, story in the show notes there. Rebecca, what do, do so we had weather by Jenny Awful coming up. Anything mm-hmm. else we need to tell people about? Um, that we're going to be doing. I'm just looking real quick. I, the Pulitzers are coming out. We're going to do a bonus yeah. episode, one of our midweek episodes about that. Um, we're going to do we're a confidence do... index in um, mm-hmm. various literary adaptations hitting the movie theaters this spring and summer. We would have done that already if maybe one of us who might be may or may not be speaking right now hadn't had a technical problem <laughs> um, with our first go around at that, but we're going to take another crack at it. Uh, and well, I guess some of these movies... I mean, weirdly, it's more relevant now because some of the movies we talked about aren't actually coming out in the spring, in the spring and summer. <laughs> By the time we record next week, it's the yeah. List of I don't know. We'll have to too. see what yeah. um, what's up there. Um, Rebecca, thank you so much. We'll talk to you uh, next week. Yeah, have a good one. 